Julie walked into my office in the middle of orientation week just before the start of regular classes. Her eyes began filling with tears the moment she sat down. She explained that she was from Saskatchewan, that she was going to be studying biology, and that this was the first time she was living away from her family, from her friends, from her home. Almost immediately upon her arrival at the U of A, she had decided to start connecting with the student services available on campus. So she found the chaplain's office where she met me. After our meeting, she had arranged to meet someone from counseling services. She said she wanted to have a good list of people to talk to for when things got overwhelming and she would need all of our help. My first instinct about Julie was to wonder at her wisdom. Here she was already anticipating that she might need help along the way and was establishing relationships with those who could offer such help. But then a darker thought struck me. What kind of place is the university that makes this young woman assume that it will eventually break her? to the point where she will require professional help to get through to the other side. Last year, the U of A Wellness Services put out a student health report. That report stated that for the academic year of 2012-2013, out of the nearly 40,000 students who attend the U of A, 51% of them felt that things were hopeless. 52% felt overwhelming anxiety. 57% experienced extreme stress. 61% felt lonely. 65% felt very sad. 87% felt exhausted and not from physical activity. And 6.8% considered committing suicide, with 1% attempting it. Now, I've heard people in our community suggest that once you get out of university, you get into the real world. Well, these numbers suggest that the university is the real world. And for many students, the real world is not such a nice place. Today, we focus on chaplaincy in our denomination. Today, we gather to celebrate, to reflect upon, and to pray for those who have dedicated their lives to being the presence of Christ in human institutions that have the potential to be places of deep darkness and despair. Places where people tend to be at their most vulnerable. Places that are most conducive to helplessness and hopelessness. Places like hospitals, the military, corporations, seniors' homes, prisons, and universities. Now, please don't misunderstand me or mishear me. I'm not suggesting that these places have a monopoly on pain and sorrow. I'm not suggesting that these places also can't be places of great wonder and beauty and joy. I'm suggesting that these are places where pain and sorrow tend to be more concentrated. 
To use the Exodus language of our text for this morning, these are places where people are crying out for help, begging for God to come and deliver them. And it's in acknowledgement of this desperate cry that we call and appoint hospital, prison, and military chaplains and campus ministers. Our text for this morning is about crying out to God and about God hearing and delivering. Psalm 107 is a great liturgical psalm of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. The poem opens up with a very standardized declaration that we see in quite a few other psalms. Give thanks to the Lord. And this call to give thanks is given for two reasons. God is good and God's steadfast love endures forever. These reasons aren't just random. The demonstration of God's goodness and loving kindness isn't vague. It isn't general within the community that produced this poem and then sang it in their worship. The goodness and steadfast love of God is something that is very tangible. It's specific. It's nameable. It's even reportable. It's as if those who have actually experienced God's deliverance are present in the congregation and able to give testimony to the goodness and loving kindness of God. For this reason, the psalm not only summons the congregation to thanks, it also identifies those who most readily and appropriately will give thanks. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord in our midst speak that we might hear the acts of the Lord and give thanks. Those God redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. Redeemed here refers to Exodus. But not only that, to those who also to those who have returned from the dislocation and displacement of exile. The psalmist almost demands that those who have experienced such deliverance speak out so that the rest of the congregation may hear about what God has done and give thanks to God with them. And I'm sure that there are plenty of people here in our midst who could testify to this, who could stand up right now and give thanks for the way God has redeemed them. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, the rhetoric of verse 3 is inclusive and pertains to all Jews who have been brought home and to all who had lived through God's generous homecoming. The four-directional inclusion recalls Isaiah 43, verse 6, wherein Yahweh seeks out the scattered. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The rhetorical maneuver acknowledges the God of all gathering. Thus says the Lord God in Isaiah 56, who gathers the outcasts of Israel. I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. These are the ones who are to give thanks to Yahweh because they are the ones who know Yahweh's loving kindness firsthand. Consider how the Gospel of John picks up this text when Jesus describes Himself as the Good Shepherd. I have other sheep who are not in this fold. I must gather them in as well. 
Gathering is God's great redemptive project so that those who come in may testify to the congregation what God has done so that we might all give thanks. And then just to make the point even stronger, the opening section is followed by four case studies, if you will. Four sort of narratives about God's steadfast love and goodness. The first case study is about those who are lost in the wilderness without any resources. There can be little question that the writers of this poem are thinking about the wilderness wanderings during the Exodus. But the poem isn't limited to that. The psalm speaks universally and metaphorically into all human situations where we find ourselves lost, wandering, being drained of vitality and life, being drained of our very soul. In 1993, the Irish rock band U2 released the album Zuropa, taking us on a tour of a barren wasteland called Zuropa. The opening track begins with a cacophony of slogans from the advertising world. In the background, behind slogans for Audi, United Airlines, and SlimFast, just to name a few, one can hear a voice asking us, what do you want and what are you afraid of? Well, the answer in the world of Zuropa is that whatever you want, whatever you're afraid of, The demigods of science and technology and economics are ready to deliver you from your fear. The sad irony is that these gods, in whom we have so completely put our trust, disappoint us time and time again, until we're left to do nothing but drone the words from the song Numb, also on the album. I'm feeling numb. Too much is not enough. Give me some more. It's the ridiculous voices of these gods that numb us, that steal from us any sense of direction, of purpose, of boundaries, that steal from us any sense of God in our midst. And so the lead singer Bono sings, and I have no compass, and I have no map, and I have no reason, no reason to get back, and I have no religion, and I don't know what's what, and I don't know the limit, the limit of what we've got. Or as Augustine writes in his Confessions, I sank away from Thee and I wandered, O my God. Too much astray from Thee my stay in these days of my youth, and I became to myself a barren land. This wandering, this displacement, this homelessness is a condition that I see all the time on the university campus. Life can become a wilderness from which people try to escape, even as they look for the presence of God amid pain and struggle. Sometimes they don't even realize how lost they are. When they do finally notice, they're often so far gone that no help seems possible. J. Mary Ludy writes, Afflicted by the restlessness typical of the affluent West, they wander from marriage to marriage. Diet to diet, spiritual path to spiritual path, drug of choice to drug of choice. For the aimless soul, frantic with appetites, nothing can satisfy except the grounding, orienting love of God. The good news of Psalm 107 
is that it's never too late. A way out can be had for a cry. Then those who are wandering cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and God delivered them from their distress. Their aimless wandering is ended when God provides for them a straight path to a great homecoming. This refrain in the song is Israel's fundamental expression of faith. Israel cries, God hears, God answers, God saves. This is the heart of God's goodness and God's loving kindness. This is a God who hears and who responds decisively to the need of Israel. Let those who were lost but are now found give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love and wonderful works in their lives. They were hungry and faint and thirsty, but now God has satisfied them and filled them. This case study sets the tone for the remaining three. For the entire psalm, for Israel's entire life of faith, need, cry, rescue, gratitude. The second case study takes us from homelessness and homecoming to captivity and liberation. Here, the metaphor isn't wandering or being lost. It's prison, darkness, and gloom. We can consider the great work of our prison chaplains who spend hours providing pastoral care to those who we as a society have either forgotten about or who consider undeserving of any mercy or compassion. There can hardly be any question that some in prison are there due to their rebellion against God and the rules of society. They have lived an unwise life and are now dealing with the consequences. But some are there who shouldn't be. Those who are victims of injustice, both here in Lacombe and around the world. We may also consider those who suffer in prisons of the mind. Anxiety, depression, addiction, and Alzheimer's, for example. And those who suffer from physical disability, or whose homes and apartments are like prisons. Or again, those who are in abusive relationships that feel like prisons. For all of these, life is sometimes nothing but hard labor, where every waking moment is a struggle to go on. They continually fall with no one to help, whether due to a lack of political compassion, a lack of education, or simply because we'd all just rather ignore them. These two offer up desperate cries to Yahweh, and their cries spur God into action. God saves them from their distress and brings them out of darkness and gloom, breaking their bonds asunder with God's mighty arm. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and steadfast love and wonderful deeds. They were locked away, but God shattered the doors and cut the bars in two. The third case study has to do with those who are sick. For some, this must be because of their sinful ways. The Hebrew word here for sick can actually be translated as foolish. Consider the words of Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Unlike the wanderers who couldn't find food, these sick loathed the good that was offered to them and were unable to sustain themselves. They are literally sick from sin. 
Yet I think we should also remember those who are suffering from sickness and disease that has nothing to do with sin or guilt. Here is where our hospital chaplains do their work. For these people, their despair is rooted in the betrayal of their own bodies. For these people and their loved ones, life has been reduced to waiting. Waiting for tests. Waiting for results. Waiting for bad news. Hoping against hope for something good. And perhaps most terribly, waiting to die. These two offer up their cries to the Lord and God hears. God sends out God's creative and healing word. And healing happens. Let them also thank the Lord for His steadfast love and His wonderful works to humankind. The fourth and final case study has to do with the sea. This one feels a little bit odd when compared with the first three until we understand what the sea represented for Israel and for many living in the ancient Near East. See, the Israelites weren't a seafaring people. They limited their engagement with the waters to near the shore, to fishing. They weren't going across the Mediterranean and exploring. The sea then represents chaos and disorder, even death. When a storm blew up on the Sea of Galilee or on the Mediterranean, it was as if creation itself was at risk of falling apart. Recall the creation story of Genesis 1 where God separates the land from the water, establishing boundaries between them. So in Job 38, God says, "Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst from the womb, when I made the cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed bounds for it, and set bars and doors, and said, This far you shall come, water, chaos, disorder, and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stopped. Or Jeremiah 5, Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. This understanding of the sea as the primordial forces of chaos is picked up by the New Testament in the stories of Jesus calming the storm. It's also why in John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation, there is no longer any sea. This chaos, this disorder underlies all of the case studies, whether it's a sense of homelessness or of gloom, of oppression or the despair of disease. What all of these have in common is a fundamental sense that the world has been thrown out of control, a feeling of complete and utter abandonment by God. Jonah, good old Jonah, Pulling from a variety of the Psalms expresses it this way in his prayer from the belly of the whale. The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet when Jonah cries to the Lord, when these who are on the sea cry to the Lord, when in the midst of this chaos and disorder, when creation itself seems to be on the brink of utter destruction, they cry out to the Lord and God hears their cry. God stilled the storm and brought their reeling and staggering to an end. Then God brought them through the sea to safety. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love and His wonderful works to humankind. 
So what does this psalm have to say to us? This poem that's thousands of years old. How does it speak to us today? Well, I'd like to suggest four issues to consider in the light of this psalm. First, this ancient Hebrew poem expresses the dramatic movement of need, petition, rescue, thanks that is the epitome of Israel's faith. The poem has stylized this movement so that it can be used in a liturgical setting, probably in the temple or in a synagogue or, in our case, the church. This psalm can now be read, sung as an integral part of the worshiping life of the church. Despite its stylization, however, the poem derives from the raw, lived experience of Israel. That is, the poem speaks universally into the lives of people everywhere who are experiencing those realities that the case study displayed. What all these case studies highlight is the desperation, dislocation, separation, condemnation, isolation, desolation that is the reality of so many people today. About a year ago, someone created a Facebook page called U of A Confessions. It gives the people a chance to confess whatever they want anonymously. Sometimes they're funny. Most of them are about sex. But every once in a while, I read one that really, really strikes me. There was one that came on there a few weeks ago. Again, they're anonymous. I don't know who it was. But the person wrote, I give up. I can't do it anymore. I can't keep hiding and saying everything is okay anymore. I can't keep hiding it. I'm dying inside. I feel so dirty and worthless and unlovable. I quit. Quit what? University? Life? I don't know. It's anonymous. It's hard for me to read that because there's nothing I can do. Well, I can pray. That's not nothing. The poem reminds us that we live in a world of threat, a world that is dangerous, a world that is always on the brink of spinning out of control, a world in which Yahweh makes a decisive difference. The decisive difference is the deliverance of Yahweh that calls from us specific words and acts of thanksgiving that are done in public. Second, chaplains serve a vital role in embodying the deliverance of God in those areas of vulnerability and darkness to which they have been called. They need our support and our prayers in the work that they do on our behalf. Yet having and supporting chaplains doesn't absolve us of the responsibility we have of expressing our gratitude to God both liturgically in church and relationally outside of church, in the way we, as the body of Christ and flesh, are incarnate, embody the deliverance of God in our lives so that others might also experience that deliverance. Our gratitude for God's deliverance must spill out of us into acts of justice, peace, and love 
and into the lives of others who so desperately need it. We are the body of Christ. It's through us that the wonderful works of Jesus, our Redeemer, are made visible to humankind. Third, there's a tension here that we dare not miss. There are those who have been crying out to God for days, months, and even years with no answer. If our gratitude is not to become an exercise in triumphalism, it must be tempered with compassion. Our rejoicing with those who rejoice is empty if it is not accompanied by weeping with those who weep. The same God who turns deserts into pools of water turns rivers into a desert. There's deep mystery here. We're often given no explanation for the darkness and chaos we experience. In just a few weeks, we begin the season of Advent, a season that is all about waiting. We are waiting, longing, yearning even for God to come and do a new thing in our midst. For God to break in, to interrupt our darkness with light. Psalm 107 declares that our suffering is placed within a redemptive perspective. This enduring narrative of salvation. But it's still suffering. All our gratitude is empty if we're not willing to enter into one another's suffering. Finally, the great hope of the psalm is that suffering isn't the final word. The psalm declares in no uncertain terms that no matter the cause of our need, whether sin and guilt or oppression and injustice or sickness and wandering, God's goodness and steadfast love will be the final word. If chaos and darkness, if the sea is the threatening dismantling of creation, the psalmist declares in no uncertain terms that God is in the business of making creation new. Look at the language. Multiply you. Bless you. This is language from Genesis chapter 1 when God blessed Adam and Eve and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. This is the very reality of Calvary and Easter. There is no need that is beyond the scope of God's saving arm if only we will cry out. God is present even in His absence. God is making all things new. Even now, we can catch a glimpse of it. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And let those who are wise give heed to these things and consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen.